Chapter 18 Urza's Tower It was three years after the fall of Krug that Thanos finally rejoined Urza in the most southwesterly of the Argavian provinces. They were hard years, and their toll showed on the apprentice's face. Years of running and hiding, of flight and patience, of work and abandoned work. Kayla was with him, and Harbin, her son, born in the midst of a monsoon, outside Jorlin, and now two and a half. They were also accompanied by two animated statues Thanos had created during that horrible second winter, when Falaji's slave-taken patrols had forced them to flee into the Kerr ridges. They had finally made their way into Corlys itself, but even then, they did not believe they were safe. The Corlysians were still trading with the Falaji, and though they were negotiating with the Argivans on a pact of mutual protection from the desert raiders, Kayla wondered if the fugitives would be turned over to Mitra's representatives as a sign of the merchant's goodwill. They traveled in secret, and mostly at night. They did not give their real names, though there were enough who recognized Kayla's profile, particularly in the Yodian coastal towns, to provide needed aid. It was that very recognition and the threat of exposure it brought that convinced the former queen to head north and east toward Argivan sanctuary. When word finally reached them that, yes, Urza was in Argive near the Corlysian border, the three, accompanied by their two artificial protectors, made their way to Urza's tower. This was more easily proposed than accomplished. Urza had selected a site far from towns or villages, hard on the flanks of the Kerr ridges themselves. The veil of his tower was cloaked in a continual fog, fed by mountain streams cascading to the valley floor around it. To a casual observer, it was a shadowed mountain glen, similar to hundreds of others along the western borders of Corlys and Argyth, but this veil curved and extended slightly to the north, and in the northern pocket, hidden by the mist, Urza built a sanctuary. Out of those mists came five murky figures, a man on horseback, a woman and a boy on a sturdy pony, and two silent statues tirelessly keeping pace. The tower itself was made of white stone and topped by a golden cupola. It looked slender and lonely, flanked by the valley walls themselves. Kayla noted that there was no sign of activity about the place. She commented that it looked as if it had been abandoned. Taunus agreed. In the old days, in Yodia, there had been ornithopter patrols continually in the air over such an important site. Indeed, were it not for a loyal Yodian expatriate found in a nearby town two days previous, they would have missed the tower entirely. The child, Harbin, squealed and twisted in his place in front of his mother. The misty air was a delight for the child, and he kept trying to reach out and grab a handful of it. Taunus tried explaining that air cannot be caught, at least not with one's hands. The boy listened, stern-faced, nodded in agreement, and attempted to grapple with the air the moment Taunus's back was turned. Taunus pulled up his mount, a hundred paces from the tower. The place was silent as a tombstone. Where were the protections? Had Urza truly abandoned this tower, or had they already been spotted? But if the latter, why was there no welcome? There was a movement to Taunus's right, and he suddenly wheeled the horse in place. Out of the mountain shadows came the reflection of light on metal and a curious low chirping sound. A figure stepped into view, followed by a second and a third. They were a cross between men and metallic insects, their long, ant-like heads perched on a spindly neck. They looked as if they were wearing metallic armor pitted by flecks of rust. Then, Taunus realized this armor housed their bodies. Beneath the plates, the apprentice could see the mechanisms and levers clatter, forcing the creatures to move forward. Their knees bent backward, like the Avengers, though these constructs were barely as tall as a man's shoulder. They were armed with heavy cleavers mounted on poles, which they brandished at the travelers. The machines were silent. The chirping was nothing more than the wear of metal on metal, of pulleys hissing from cables, running through their loops, and of brass trip switches, setting and resetting. Tonos heard a strangled cry and looked toward Kayla. There were another three on her side of the road, similarly armed and armored. 
the two groups were converging on the travelers. Taunus barked a command at the statues, one of the five they understood, and spread his mount forward, shouting for Kayla to fall. The horse, a weathered old beast, wickered a complaint and moved forward slowly. Equally slow, the two clay statues turned toward their assailants. Each had been taught to recognize weapons and to attack those bearing them. The number of targets confused the statues for a moment. Then, each statue chose a wing of the assailants. What followed was a silent battle, one without shouts or cries. The clay statues were armed only with their fists, but they were huge ham-handed fists, with a great deal of power behind them. The metal automatons were quick, and with their weapons, had a reach the statues lacked. A deadly battle ensued, punctuated by the ring of hard blows landed on armor and the soft chopping noise of blades digging into earth and flesh. The two lead automatons of each wing got too close to the statues and were rewarded with hammer blows to the face. One dodged, but the other caught the blow head on. Its spindly neck snapped, and the head fell across the creature's back, still held by a tangle of loose wires. The rest of the body did not recognize the loss, but still flailed at the clay opponent with its chopping blade. The blades dug deep, but the clay closed up as soon as the blades cut through it, like soft dough incised by a bread knife. One of the chopping blades got hopelessly mired in the clay creature, and the statue reached out and grasped the automaton's head. It squeezed, and bits of automaton became permanently lodged in the statue's huge hand as it shattered the creature's skull. Two of the automatons fell back, then countered attack as one. The clay statue raised an arm to ward off the blow, and both attempted to chop at the same arm. The first blade cut deep, and the second deeper still. There was a dull ring of metal on metal, and a snapping noise as the second automaton cut through a metal bone at the heart of the clay statue's arm. The statue raised that arm, but most of the clay was slung off of it now, revealing a thin metal framework beneath. While the automatons and statues battled, Taunus and Caleb rode for the tower. If Urz was there, then these would be his creations, and he could call them off. If he was absent, the tower might provide some sanctuary until the clay statues had defeated their foes. Taunus shouted at the tower and saw movement along the upper battlement. A tall, familiar figure raised a whistle to his lips. There was a short piping of three notes, and Taunus turned in his saddle to see the automatons had ceased their attack. Unfortunately, the clay statues still saw them as threats, and one snapped off another neck before Taunus shouted the word for them to stand down. The clay statues halted as well, one in mid-punch. Taunus looked up, but the figure was gone from the battlements. The front door was open, and a second figure emerged. This was not Urza, but he had the leanness of the chief artificer, and Taunus wondered if he had been mistaken about the figure seen above. This man was dressed in the uniform of a Yodian officer, a flyer, by the looks of the shadows where patches and insignia once hung. He was a lieutenant, or had been, back when the Yodians had an armed force. The figure dropped to one knee before the mounted figures. Your Majesty, he said to the Queen. Good Sir Taunus, the artificer bids you welcome to his tower. If he had known you were coming, he would have deactivated the guards. I am Sharaman. Please enter and make yourself welcome. He went to Kayla's horse to help her dismount, and instead received a handful of young Harbin. The former lieutenant looked as if he had been handed a bag of live snakes, and quickly, but gently, put the sandy-haired child down while Kayla dismounted. The lad ignored the brusque treatment, but instead craned his head toward the battlements. Taunus looked up and saw the flicker of the familiar figure of the chief artificer as Urza moved back into the shadows of the balcony doorway. Then the slender figure was gone entirely. Taunus dismounted, as Sharaman said, If you will follow me, I am to make you welcome, and to escort you to the artificer. Kayla said, That will be fine. Sharaman paused, and then said, Your Majesty, I apologize. I was instructed to make both of you welcome, 
but to bring good Sir Tonos to Master Urza. I hope this is not a problem. Kayla and Tonos looked at each other. Tonos had been sure Urza would wish to see his wife first. After all these years, now there was a tightness to the queen's lips, and she nodded her agreement. Charmon put the queen and Harbin in an austere waiting room on the lower floor, informing them he would return with drinks and sugar wafers. This endeared him immediately to Harbin, who squealed as Kayla gave her assent. The former lieutenant took Tonos up several sets of stairs. How is he? asked Tonos at one landing. He is, said Charmon briefly. He has been through a lot. As we all have, thought Tonos. But he said nothing as Charmon pushed open the final door and stood aside for Tonos to enter. The apprentice stepped into Urza's study and Charmon closed the door softly behind him. The room was tasteful and tidy, verging on severe. A thin rug partially covered the wooden floor and several tilted drawing boards stood near the windows, all covered with plants in various stages of development. A ball and socket joint, carved of yarrow wood, lay on a small work table next to an open book. Urza himself was at the balcony, his back to Tonos, looking out over the foggy veil and the remains of the earlier battle. His hands were clasped behind him. Tonos waited. At last, Urza let out a great sigh and turned toward Tonos. I had expected a message first, the older man said. Tonos saw the line on Urza's face, a small collection at the corner of each eye. His eyes seemed deeper as well, more sunken into their sockets, and his hair was turning fully to the shade of spun white gold. Tonos said, Messages can be intercepted, sir, and we are not sure of your location until we pass the Argivian border. Urza nodded offhandedly and took another deep breath. Then he forced a smile. It is good to see that you're alive. I worry when there was no news. We spent longer than we should have in Yodia, said Tanos. Yes, said Urza, pressing his palms together and twisting them slowly. I suppose you had to. Look at my desk, would you? On the book holder there. Tanos walked over to the desk. The Jalum Tome, he said at last. The Jalum Tome, repeated Urza. You succeeded, Tanos. All the knowledge you loaded into the ornithopter. Young Rendell made it to Argive, and everything was waiting for me when I finally got to Penrigan. Most of my work, and our papers. There was some loss, but nothing that couldn't be recouped. One student packed a list of laundry to be picked up, thinking it was an important paper, but under the circumstances, it was a brilliant move. Urza looked at Tanos. Thank you. It was my responsibility, said Tanos, bowing slightly. And more than adequately discharged, said Urza. Those statues you brought with you. Very impressive. Clay over a framework of wicker and metal, replied Tanos. That is more than just clay, said Urza. It seemed to struggle up the blows of my own soldiers. Yes, sir, said Tanos, wondering why they were speaking of such matters while Kale was still waiting. It was from a deposit when we, when Her Majesty and I, were hiding in the mountains. It had the property of flowing and rejoining when cut. At first, I thought it might contain something similar to the Thran stones, but now I am not sure. If I can locate the primal nature of this earth, we can make wonderful creations. Yes, said Urza, and suddenly pointed toward a corner of his workshop. That chest. Look inside. Tonos looked quizzically at the old artificer, but did as he asked. When Tonos opened the coffer, he was nearly blinded by the light of the stones within. Power stones, he said. Aye, said Urza, pride in his voice. I have never seen this many in one place remarked the apprentice. Aye, repeated Urza. While we were doing the best we could with what we had in Krug, the Argivian nobles had been collecting them for over 40 years. 
There's much more than that, more than enough to power any number of devices. That's what the Yodian soldiers operate off of. Yodian, said Tanos, a small stab of pain in his voice. Urza held up his hands, a small conceit. My guards, they're smaller than the Avengers and easier to produce. I call them Yodian soldiers because they will, I hope, prevent Yodia's fate from visiting Argive and Corliss. An old friend once told me there was power in names, and perhaps, Urza let his voice trail off, Perhaps that will take back Yodia for the queen, said Tanos. For the Yodian people, said Urza quickly, for the people who trusted me and whom I delivered into my brother's hands. Your brother has his hands full of them at the moment, said Tanos. Urza did not reply. I understand he leads the Falaji now. Urza nodded. The universe changes. Yodia falls. My brother leads the Falaji. In Argive, the crown has lost almost all of its power, for it let Yodia worry about the desert tribes, and now Yodia is gone. The nobles hold most of the power in Penrigan, and they are very, very concerned about the Falaji crossing the ridges and attacking. Are you? asked Tanos. Worried, that is? Urza opened his arms to include the room. This is the result of worry, Tanos, he said. I can duplicate this tower in five days, given sufficient materials. I am working on a way to have the Yodian soldiers themselves build it. Imagine, a line of these forts, manned by unsleeping soldiers, protecting Argive and Corlys from the Falaji, protecting them from my brother. Tanos nodded. I was surprised to not see any ornithopters. Urza shook his head. They're needed to the north, patrolling the passes. Besides, sending an ornithopter aloft is sending a flare for the enemy, showing him where you are. That's another lesson learned at great price. Urza stood there for a moment, grinding his palms. Did I tell you we have another school? In Penrigan this time? Rendell is there, and his brother Sanwell. He survived, along with a handful of others. The school is being overseen by an old friend, Richlau. Did I ever mention Richlau before? Urza, said Tano softly. I don't think I did, continued Urza. Anyway, there is a whole raft of young nobles. Well, not young anymore, but individuals who once worked with Tokasia and who know about artifacts and who value them and are willing to help me in my research. Urza, said Tanos again. More than just power stones, I mean manpower, training, and resources. Argive is a rich country. Urza, said Tanos the third time sharply. What is it? asked Urza testily. Kayla is here, said Tanos. I know, the artificer said, and there was a long pause. Then he said, I know. Again, and there was a longer pause. You should go down to meet her, said Tanos. And your son. Is he really? started Urza hotly, but letting the question die. He has your hair, said Tanos. He has my father's hair, said Urza, and turned to look out the window again. I wish you hadn't brought them, he said after a time. By all the gods of Yotia, shouted Tanos, and Urza jumped at the sound of the younger man's voice. We have been running and hiding for three years now. I delivered your son. Yes, your son, in the middle of a thunderstorm. I bring them all the way here. And you don't want to see them? Do you still hate her so much? Urza turned pale, and Tanos was afraid the older man was going to flinch, to flee, to pull back farther within himself. No, he said at last. It's not that. Not entirely. It's just that I failed. I failed to see what was coming. I failed to anticipate my brother's plans. I failed her, and I failed her nation. 
And I failed, said Taunus grimly. And she's failed. We've had to live with failure every step of the way from Krug. Is that what it is, Urza? Are you ashamed that you're just as fallible as the rest of us? A long silence between them for a moment. Then Urza sighed and said, I'm a storm crow, Taunos. A bird of ill omen. Disaster follows in my wake. And I don't want to hurt her anymore. I don't want to hurt anyone anymore. Only a fool would be at my side. Then call me a fool for one, said Taunus. I would like to go back to being your apprentice. Kayla would like to go back to being your wife. Urza turned away again, and Taunus saw him raise his hand to his face, perhaps to wipe away a tear. Yet when Urza turned back, his face was patient and calm, and his eyes were clear. The artificer smiled. I have no need of an apprentice, and your skills with those statues prove that you are a master artificer in your own right. Will, if you don't need an apprentice, you need someone who will get behind you and give you a good thwack from time to time, said Taunus. That is a job I can do as well. And do well, said Urza. I need a friend, and you've been one to me, and to the queen. You've not felt either of us. You're wrong, said Taunus. But we can talk about that some other time. Indeed, we can, said Urza, then nodded his head. Let's go see my wife, and my son. Slowly, they descended the stairs from the tower. Taunus wondered if sound carried as well in the tower as it did in the old palace of Krug. Urza stopped at once to point out some feature of the tower to Taunus, then shook his head and pressed on. He realized, Taunus thought, that he was delaying the inevitable. They reached the waiting room. Taunus waited at the door. Sharaman set down the tray of sugar wafers and retreated to the hallway as well. Neither man left, but neither remained in the room. Kayla rose, and Urza walked over to her. They embraced, but it was a polite embrace each resting hands on the other's elbows. Still, they did not part, and Taunus could see tears welling in Kayla's eyes. It is good, rasped Urza, his throat tight. He cleared his throat and said, It is good to see you again. Kayla's mouth moved, but Taunus did not hear the words. Hey, said Harbin at their feet. He pulled on Urza's smock, and the artificer looked down at the lad. Harbin looked at Urza, and with all the power that a -a two-and-a-half-year-old can muster, said, Uncle Tano said you're my daddy, are you? Urza looked at Kayla, then down at the small child. He knelt and took the lad's small hand in his own. I suppose I am, he said, and I'm very pleased to meet you after all these years.